Good morning. Isn't it brilliant what we've just heard from Maddie and Simon there? I'm so thrilled when he said about all they've experienced from Hastings is positivity. Isn't that amazing? Um, It's brilliant to hear about the Syrian resettlement program. I'm so thrilled that as a church we're involved in things like this, aren't you? Isn't it great that we just have this opportunity to help people who have been through some awful things and maybe help them rebuild their lives and find love and community and home? Um, Paul, Steve and I have been talking for quite some months about how we as a church could really um, help refugees in the town. It's something that's been on the elders' heart, it's something that's been on my heart and I'm sure many of your hearts as well. So we've been talking about it, thinking what can we actually do? And this has been months and months of conversation and one of the things we wanted to do was have a Sunday where we actually focused on refugees, which is why we're doing what we're doing today. And originally we thought that Paul, um, who leads the church here, for those of you who don't know, we thought that he would do this message, that he would talk to us about refugees. But he's on a three-month holiday. Sorry, I mean sabbatical. Um, I get told off. Sorry, Chloe, don't tell him. Um, yeah, he's, he's on a three-month sabbatical. So it's my privilege that I get to address this subject this morning. And I'm so thrilled that I do. That said, I do want to be really honest with you that I have found it really, really hard to prepare this message. Really hard. Over the last, not so much this week leading into Sunday, but the week before and the week before that, I've, I've struggled because this is such a political issue. It's such a contentious issue. It's such a live issue. And there will be people here this morning who have really strong feelings in one direction and people who have really strong feelings in another direction. And it is a really political issue, and many of you know that I've been involved in politics locally over the last few years. And so, I'll be honest with you, about a week ago, I was kind of thinking, how can I water down what the Bible says about this issue so that we will feel more comfortable this morning, and so that we'll find it more palatable, and we'll all get to have a nice Sunday and just go away and think, oh yeah, that's so nice, lovely. But you know what, obviously that's not what I'm going to do this morning and I'm sure you wouldn't want me to do that. I think as I've wrestled with it, I've really struggled with this. Do I want to please everyone and let us all be nice and comfortable or do I want to obey God and be true to what the Bible says? And I'm sure you'll be thrilled that I want to be true to what the Bible says. So the Bible doesn't actually say that much about refugees, but it does say an awful lot about foreigners. So we are going to touch on the issue of immigration as well as refugees this morning. Um, And hopefully, yeah, we just all going to open our hearts to him and hear what God has to say this morning. Actually, before I get going, would you mind if I just pray that for us? Why don't we stand just quickly? If you feel comfortable to do so, why don't you, just as I'm praying, just say to God in your own heart, I want to be open to you. I want to align myself with what the Bible says. I want to lay aside everything I think, everything I've heard, everything I've listened to and hear from you, God, this morning. God, I do pray for us. Help us. Some of these issues we face in our society can be so complex and so difficult for us to understand. And we can hear voices on all sides. But this morning, God, we want to hear your voice above every voice, every other voice, every politician, every journalist, every preacher, every speaker. I pray we'd hear your voice, God. Would you speak into our hearts? Help us to be open-hearted to you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. We can take your seats. So many of you will know that we are coming towards the end of an eight or nine-week series on the book of James, the letter written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. 
And there's an awful lot in that, as we've been hearing, about poverty and wealth. Um, James was actually even writing to Christians who had been dispersed um, and displaced. They'd been scattered among the nations due to persecution. So he was actually writing to refugees um, in one sense. And Andrew talked brilliantly on true religion a few weeks ago at the start of this series. And one of the verses he looked at was um, James 1 verse 27 that says that true religion, the religion that God accepts, is to look after orphans and widows in their time of distress and affliction. And Andrew commented, and I'm sure many of us would agree, that refugees actually are kind of a modern-day equivalent, that when it says in the Bible, widows and orphans, Matthew Henry says in his commentary that this verse is actually saying that compassion and charity towards the poor and distressed form a very great and necessary part of true religion. And he adds that the mention of widows and orphans in this verse, by that we are to understand that we have a responsibility as Christians to express our faith through looking after the distressed in general and relieving those who are afflicted. And then I think a couple of weeks after that, Paul spoke in his um, last preach before he went on sabbatical. And he asked us an interesting question. He was talking about partiality and prejudice and favoritism. And he asked us the question, Um, God has a bias towards the poor. How's your bias? Is it the same as God's? Bias, you know, just means that we, in that context, it means that God has kind of a special preference towards the poor, that God is especially concerned with the poor. He is biased towards them in their favor, feeling compassion for them. And I know that I can be biased about a lot of things, and often it's not in that direction. Often it means that I'm prejudiced against things. So Paul asked us the challenging question, how's your bias? Is it the same as God's? And that's part of what we're going to look at this morning. I mean, there's so much in James about our faith being expressed in action, about the fact that faith actually without deeds is dead, that our faith is supposed to have legs to it, have arms to it, have action to it. And so this morning, by focusing on refugees, we're just looking at one practical application of everything we've been hearing about and reading about in James over the last few weeks. So, you know, why refugees? Why have we been talking about focusing on refugees? Why, as a church, are we involved in the Syrian resettlement program? Well, firstly, I think it's really helpful to give a bit of definition and to explain what we're talking about. So, according to the UN Refugee Agency, a refugee is someone who has been forced to flee his or her country because of persecution, war or violence and cannot return home or are too afraid to return home. So migrants, on the other hand, are people who choose to move, um, maybe to be reunited with family members, maybe for work, maybe just for a better life, um, and don't really have that same reason to fear returning home. When it comes to refugees, the scale of the crisis at the moment in our world is absolutely huge. Um, There are currently estimated to be 65 million people in the world who have been forced to flee their homes. That's basically the population of the United Kingdom who are now no longer able to be in their homes from fear of persecution or war or death, torture as we've heard about. And so many of the 65 million who are displaced from their homes actually stay within their own nation and don't cross country borders. But there are 22.5 million refugees, that's people out of their own country who fled at the moment. 
contrary to what we might imagine in the media and the things we read about and we're told about, 80% of the world's refugees are actually um, hosted in developing countries around the world, not in countries like ours. And there are actually just under 119,000 refugees estimated to be living in the UK today, which is 0.18% of our population. There were 38,500 asylum applications to the UK last year, which is significantly lower than countries such as Germany, Sweden and France. And actually more than half of those applications were refused. The current global refugee crisis is on a scale that's really unprecedented. Maybe the Second World War is really the only example in history of where it's been on this grand scale. So it dominates our headlines we hear about it, don't we, in newspaper headlines and things like that. But how are we to think about it biblically? You know, we see images in our media are going to come up on the screen and they're shocking to us of a three-year-old boy's body washed up on the beach, dead. His family had been fleeing to safety. We see images like the five-year-old in the back of an ambulance who just bloodied and shocked unable to really comprehend what's going on. We see those sorts of images, and obviously they rightly um, touch our hearts. They rightly cause us to feel compassion. But then we also see newspaper headlines. Um, actually, if you Google headlines about refugees, the images that come up are along the lines of new migrant flood on the way, migrants swarm to Britain, asylum, your right to worry. And we hear about overstretched public services and some of the things that we really hold dear, like our NHS and free education and social care and things like that. And we fear for, well, how are we going to cope? How is our system going to cope if we just say everyone can come? It's really interesting that when you Google headlines about refugees, what you actually get is a whole load of headlines about migrants, actually. I don't know if you can see it clearly on the screen behind me or not. But yeah, what I typed into Google was headlines about refugees and what comes up is an awful lot of headlines about migrants. What's also really interesting though is like I've already said, when I started looking at what does the Bible say about refugees, I actually found that the Bible talks much more about foreigners in general and how we treat people who come to our country um, from other nations in general, regardless of focusing particularly on the reasons why they come. It can be really easy for us to form our views on such a contentious issue by what we hear from politicians or journalists or what we hear from celebrities or social media in particular. Um, but as those who follow Jesus, as most of us here this morning do, we need to explore what God thinks about this issue, what he has to say on the subject. And then we have a responsibility to align our hearts in accordance with what God says. So I want to start just by looking in general terms about what does God think about the nations? What does God think about people moving from one place to another? And we're going to do a little whistle-stop tour of um, some verses in the Bible. And as I've said, the Bible talks about foreigners in general, so that's where we're going to start. And this isn't um, a talk about how the state should deal with foreigners who come to our land. It's about our hearts as Christians as those who follow Jesus, what should go on in our hearts when we think about the issue of people coming from other countries to our land? The first point I want to make is that God has always had a global vision and people on the move seems to be part of it. So right from the very start of creation, God had a plan that involved people filling the whole earth. 
And actually, it's not something that came about because of sin in the world. It's something that actually happened before there was any sin. God said to Adam and Eve, increase in number and fill the earth. They were never supposed to sit in the Garden of Eden for eternity just enjoying God. They were supposed to move out and take his glory across the face of the whole earth. They were still supposed to enjoy God, obviously, but they were supposed to do it on the move. And then, you know, we know about the story of Noah and the flood. And after the flood came and God had actually wiped out most of the people on the earth, God says to Noah, when humanity is starting up again, he says, increase and fill the earth. That mandate to continue filling the earth still existed And many of us all know as well the story of the Tower of Babel. And often when we think about that story, we talk about it in terms of this group of people who wanted to build a tower to reach to the heavens and make a great name for themselves. And God then coming and confusing language so that they couldn't all gather together. But actually, if you read that story in Genesis 11 quite carefully, what you actually find is that it says that the people decided they didn't want to scatter across the earth. They decided they wanted to stay together in one place. So when God confused their languages, the Bible actually says effectively that God was forcing them to scatter and to spread across the whole earth. And then we come to Abraham. As I said, it's a whistle-stop tour. And God called him out. God said to him, leave your country, leave your people, leave your kindred, leave your father's household and go to the land I will show you. God got him on the move and said, I will turn you into a great nation. And importantly, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And in terms of actual refugees, we read that Jacob fled because Esau, his brother, was going to kill him. So he fled for fear of his life. Joseph, on the other hand, was taken into slavery. You know, most of us will know the story. He was sold by, well, put by his brothers and taken into slavery. And at the end of the story of Joseph, we often quote where Joseph says, you meant this for harm or for evil, but God has turned it for good or God meant it for good. But we sometimes miss the part where Joseph also says that it was so that they wouldn't come to poverty. It was so that they wouldn't become destitute. It was actually, if you read in Genesis 45, um, in verse 11, it says, so that you wouldn't come to poverty. In verse 7, it says, um, so that there would be survivors, so that you would stay alive. So actually, Joseph's whole family, which the Bible tells us was about 70 men, and then on top of that, obviously, women and children as well, um, were refugees who moved to Egypt to avoid the severe famine or to be looked after during it. There are loads of refugees, and there are loads of migrants, and there are loads of people moving about from one land to another in the Bible. You know, we could talk about Moses and Joshua and David and Ruth and Naomi. Um, I'm not going to go through every person of the Bible and how they've moved. You'll be pleased to know. But actually, when we come to Jesus himself, Jesus was a refugee child when Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt with him to keep him safe. God said, rise, take the boy and flee to safety. And at the end of Jesus' time on earth, he gave the disciples the Great Commission, where he said, go and make disciples of all nations. And in Acts 1 verse 8, he says, be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. God's vision has always been global. It's no accident that on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell on God's people, it says that God-fearing Jews from every nation were there. God chose a day to do it when there would be God-fearing, devout men of every nation who were there, ready to encounter God and then spread back to their different nations. 
And, you know, those of us who, who know our Bibles, who've been in church for a while, will know well how the story continues and actually how it ends as well. It continues with Jesus today ransoming people from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation on the earth for himself to create a people who belong to him, who transcend all of those barriers. And it ends with us all worshipping together around his throne. And do you know what? The plan at the end of the age, the plan when we're all together with Jesus in his glory, isn't for a multitude of identical, um, uniform, robotic worshippers who all look exactly the same and sound the same. No. God's plan actually is for incredible diversity within the body of Christ. That actually we're going to be united in Christ worshipping him, proclaiming his glory for all eternity. But part of his glory derives from the fact that he has transcended all barriers of ethnicity, of geography, of class, of status, of language, of tribe. That in Christ. Isn't it exciting? I kind of get excited about where, where we're headed. But you might say to me, okay, all right, now, fair enough, I get that. But actually, when I read my Bible, I also see that God has um, set aside a people group for himself. And if you look at the Old Testament in particular, you might be going, well, God looks pretty exclusive in the Old Testament. He's set aside his people. He's set special laws for them. He's told them that they're to be set apart and distinctive to every nation on the earth around them. Uh, But actually, when we come to look at the laws. I mean, that is true. But when God was giving laws to Moses, he set out the best way for his people to live. And sometimes when we read the Old Testament, we can think it's all about personal morality. But actually, it's as much about a corporate social structure that was going to mean society could really flourish. And a key part of it actually was how the Jewish nation were to treat foreigners among them. So one thing it says in Leviticus 19 is that when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. But more than that, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. It's radical, isn't it? God's vision for how his people were to treat foreigners isn't just don't mistreat them. It isn't actually just be kind to them. It isn't even just to welcome them. It's that they should be treated as your native born and loved as yourself. See, God has set aside a people for himself, but actually it doesn't exclude the foreigner. It's never excluded people from different nations. The law of Moses includes commands such as leaving some of the harvest for those who are in need and for the foreigner. They're mentioned specifically in Leviticus 19. God says in Exodus 23, do not oppress a foreigner. Um, In Deuteronomy 24, don't take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. In the same chapter, it says, do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice. And actually in the book of Job, where Job is defending himself, you know, Job has had all these awful things go wrong in his life and the people around him are saying, it must be because you sinned. And he's saying, no, I didn't sin. There's no reason why this has happened to me. And one of the ways in which he defends himself is saying, I've done what God asked. I've fathered the needy. I've been kind to the stranger. I've had an open door of hospitality towards the traveler. That's part of how Job was pleading his case before his friends and before God. 
And then obviously we come to Jesus as well. And we see that Jesus actually mixed with all sorts of people. And it was deeply actually offensive to some of God's people. The people who would have said, we are the people of God, were offended that Jesus mixed with Samaritans in particular. You know, the woman at the well. And Matthew Henry says in his commentary that Samaritans were the nations which of all others the Jews most despised and detested and would have no dealings with. And yet when Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan, it's about a good Samaritan. It's about the very people that Jews would have been offended that they were the victim in this situation and the Samaritan were the ones who actually came and rescued them. And Jesus used that story to say to us, who is our neighbor? Our neighbor actually is the person right in front of us who needs our help and who is vulnerable. God removes divisions, but he doesn't remove diversity. And so why should we care as Christians here today, particularly if you're a follower of Jesus, why should we care about foreigners? Well, in all of the Old Testament laws that mention foreigners and in the New Testament as well, God gives us three particular reasons why we should care about foreigners and why we should show them kindness. And the first reason is that God cares about them. It's very, very simple. In Exodus 22, for example, when God is instructing his people how to behave towards foreigners and towards those in need, he says, do it because I am compassionate. It's based on the character of God. Our kindness towards people, wherever they're from, whatever walk of life they're from, whatever their experience, is based first and foremost on the character of God, not on the person in front of us. It's based on the fact that he is compassionate. He is a compassionate God who loves people. The law of Moses was all based on actually God's character. And Christians are called to be increasingly like God, increasingly Christ-like in the way we treat others. And it's the same in the New Testament. You know, in Luke 6, Jesus says, be merciful. Why? Just as your father is merciful. It's based on the fact that God is merciful. Therefore, if we follow God, we are also called to be merciful. And in Matthew 25, Jesus outlines, you know, there are going to be people who are going to say that they knew him. And he's going to say, you didn't know me because you didn't welcome the stranger. You didn't care for those in need. And they're going to say, what do you mean I didn't? Well, when did I see you as a stranger, Jesus? And he's going to say, whatever you didn't do for the least of these, you didn't do for me. And flipping it on its head as well, he also says, whatever you did do for the least of these, you've done for me. So Jesus actually makes an intrinsic link between how we treat the stranger, how we treat those who are vulnerable and marginalized, and how we're actually treating him. It's hard-hitting stuff, isn't it? I don't know about you. I mean, even as I'm saying these words, I'm thinking, I feel challenged by it. But I want to follow Jesus. I want to be obedient to God. I want to be more Christ-like. And I want to be more committed to being like Jesus than I am to my own comfort and my own kind of sense of, oh, this does make me feel a bit like I don't know what I need to do. We're told in the Bible that if we follow Jesus, we are to love God, we're to love our neighbours, and we're to love our enemies. There's not really anyone that falls outside of any of those categories, is there? We're not really given any wriggle room to get out of loving people. We're told to do good to those who persecute us and to pray for them. It's pretty radical. But secondly, the second reason that God calls us to this is that um, the Bible says we're foreigners too, as far as God is concerned. So when God says in Exodus, don't oppress the foreigner, the reason he gives is you yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. 
Well, you might be sitting here thinking, well, I wasn't. I, I'm, I grew, maybe you were born in Britain, you grew up in Britain, you've never left Britain. You think, I'm, I'm not a foreigner. God, what are you talking about? But actually, if you're a Christian, the Bible says that you're a stranger in this world. The Bible actually says you are an alien and a foreigner, and this is not your home. It says that your citizenship is actually in heaven. That's what it says in Philippians 3, verse 20. In 1 Peter 2, it says you're part of a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And in Ephesians 2, it says we were once aliens and strangers, actually, but now in Jesus, those who are far away have been brought near. If you're a Christian here this morning, as most of us are, this is not our home. We are foreigners here because first and foremost, we are in Christ and heaven and the new earth are our home. And the third reason that God gives in the Bible for why we should help the foreigner is it actually says, so that the Lord may bless you. In Deuteronomy 24 verse 19, there's this connection between actually how we treat the foreigner, how we treat the vulnerable, and how God treats us. And I don't think we're particularly used to talking like this, but it's not just an Old Testament thing. You know, in the book of James, which we've been looking at, it says that judgment without mercy will be shown to those who don't show mercy. And Jesus, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There seems to be this correlation in the Bible um, quite clearly and quite unavoidably that how we treat people in need, how we treat people who are vulnerable, and that includes the foreigner and the stranger, reflects something of how God responds to us. So why does something within us object Because I don't know, I mean, that's all the biblical view. But I know that for me, there'll be times when I do read some of these headlines and I do hear some of these things and I think, oh gosh, what do we do? do? Why does something within me think, "Mm, but this is my country? Why does something within me do that? And I think often, if I'm honest, it's, it's out of fear. It's because I can be afraid of different things. I can be afraid, we can be afraid, I think, of losing our identity. We can think that... Well, our identity as a country and British culture and British values and they're precious to us and we hold them dear. But do you know what? If you're a Christian, the Bible says that your identity first and foremost is in Jesus Christ, not in the nation you were born in. Jesus actually put to death an us and them mentality. And in the kingdom, actually every division gets demoted. Every division actually gets put to death because the fact that we're in Christ trumps everything else that might divide us or separate us. It trumps nationality, geography, cultural differences, political preferences. Which football team you support might upset some of you there, but it does. All those things, wherever there is tribalism of any kind, all those things submit themselves to Christ and come under his lordship. For those of us who are in Christ, we are united. The dividing walls have been broken down. Hostility has been broken down. Our primary identity now is not in our nationality. It's not where we're born. It's not, this is my country, that's your country. It's the fact that we're in Christ and that we belong to him. I think we can also be afraid of losing our opportunities, thinking about, well, what if our healthcare can't cope? What if there aren't enough jobs to go round? And, you know, we're on a small island. We can't be overrun with multitudes of people, with swarms, as the headlines and some of our politicians have said. But do you know, actually, that if we took 733 million residents of the European Union and moved them onto this island, 
it would have a lower population density than Eastbourne. That's a fact. We're not actually bursting at the seams in terms of just pure geographical space. And I think sometimes we need to focus on some of these realities because we can so easily just give in to fear and give in to the things that we read and we're told without really exploring it for ourselves and looking at what is true. Many of our fears are unfounded because actually the truth is that foreigners in our country contribute more than they take. So 19% of NHS staff in England are from other countries. And when it comes to doctors, 30% of them are from other countries. It's widely known that if you took every non-British person out of our NHS staff, the whole system would collapse. So when we're worried about hospital appointments and, and you know, get our doctor's waiting times and things like that, actually we need to recognise that people from other countries contribute far more than they take away from our NHS. And not just from the NHS, but from our economy as a whole. Um, Research shows that between 1995 and 2011, European migrants made a positive contribution of £4 billion to the British economy. And actually, migrants from the EU contribute £1.34 for every pound they take out. And those from outside the EU contribute £1.02 for every penny they take out. People from other countries contribute more to our country than they take from it. And it's just something that we need to reflect upon. The Office for Budget Responsibility says that higher migration will lead to stronger public finances and less national debt over the next 50 years. We can also be afraid of things like losing our security. What if the people who come to our country don't share our British values? I just want to ask you, though, if you're a Christian here this morning... What do you put your faith in? It's a difficult question. I'm asking it of myself as well. What do we put our faith in? Is our faith in British cultural values and preserving them? Is our faith in government structures that we've... Many of us in this room will um, have only ever known the NHS as a healthcare system. I think the vast majority of us in this room, I'm trying not to look at anyone who might, might have been alive longer. But if you're a Christian here... It's not just that um, we don't need to fear because we're just used to these things. You know, we, we kind of have a sense of entitlement. I don't know about you, but if I go to the doctors and I'm kept waiting half an hour, I can get quite irritable about that, forgetting what an amazing privilege it is to live in a country that has mostly free healthcare. I mean, we can act like we have a right to it rather than actually it's just an accident of birth. Well, God's plan for where I was born that means I get the privilege of these things. But if you're a Christian, you don't need to worry about these things because the creator of the universe loves you and he cares for you. And he knows exactly the days of your life. Each one of us in this room, God knows the days of our lives. He knows the days set before us and our lives are in his hands. We sung it, it's your breath in my lungs. So what is our faith in? We don't need to be afraid of these things. And for some of us, actually, it's just that we're afraid of losing our comfort. Um, For some of us, we like our country as it is, and we don't want to have less as a result of having to share with more people. But ultimately, God calls the Christian beyond self-interest. He calls us beyond it. And it is hard. I'm not saying these things thinking they're easy, and we're all just going to sit there and go, great. But I think this is what the Bible says. And we need to just have a sober assessment of how are we living in the light of what God says. 
Um, the Pope recently challenged followers of Jesus by asking, are we willing to suffer for others? Are we willing to lay down our rights and our entitlement and the things we're used to for the good of other people? It's challenging, isn't it? It really is. But that is what Jesus did. And he's our example, isn't he? Jesus laid down his life for us. Andrew Wilson puts it like this. This is quite hard-hitting. He says, um, can we really say that because I, by an accident of birth, was born here, that I get to preserve my wealth at your expense? It's tough, isn't it? It's challenging. It's saying that basically, is it okay for us to want to preserve having wealth and having more than we need all the time there are people around us who have less than they need to actually survive? It's difficult, but we're called to be a people of sacrifice, actually. We're called to be a people who lay down our lives for others. We're called to be a people who lay down our lives for our friends, but actually who love our enemies, who do good to those who persecute us, who go the extra mile, not because the person in front of us asks us to, but because Jesus actually is the one who asks us to. And like I said, this is kind of this is about Christians. It's not so much about the state. It really is a heart issue. As I've been preparing for this, I have found my heart so deeply challenged. And if I'm honest, I wanted us to talk about refugees. I wanted us to talk about foreigners. So I didn't necessarily expect to be that challenged. But I found that the Bible is far more radical than I imagined it would be on this subject. So what do we need to do as Christians? We need to align our hearts with God's. How should we respond? Would you know, actually, part of it is about finding out people's stories. When you get to speak to people who have fled from other nations, actually, when you hear their stories, God gets space to do something in your heart and my heart to make us more compassionate and more kind and more merciful and more generous. You know, we have members of this church who are from other nations who've come here for a variety of reasons. I've had the privilege recently of talking to one woman in the church and hearing her story about how she fled um, in fear for her life, how she watched um, her family's livelihood burnt to the ground and walked for 10 days in the same clothes to get to another country, to get to safety. We're going to hear a bit more of her story in a minute, actually. But we know that not everyone comes here for safety. Not everyone does that. But do you remember Elisha, who was on impact here last year from Bulgaria? Do you remember he was on a gap year project here with us? I was in touch with him over this last week, and I said to him, I just asked him some questions about this. Because, you know, um, Bulgarians are one of kind of the groups of people that we think of as coming here for work or coming here to better their lives. And Elisha told me that a teacher in Bulgaria earns 700 lev per month, which is about 320 pounds per month. It doesn't sound like a lot for a teacher to earn. But I said to him, yeah, but it's cheaper to live in Bulgaria, isn't it, than it is to live here. And he said, yeah, but if you're married and you've got one or two children, typically you will need between 1,500 and 2,000 lev just to survive, just to have your basic needs met. So if you're a teacher earning 300 lev trying to support a family with children, it's virtually impossible for you to survive, let alone thrive, in Bulgaria. Let me, I just, as I think about that, I think if I was in that situation, why wouldn't I move? 
why wouldn't I go to another country where I thought I could provide a better life for my kids and for my family? And it's not to say, I'm not saying, oh, we should say, oh, everyone come, everyone come then. But I do think, what is our heart response to people who've moved here? Do we take the time to find out their stories and find out why? You know, it's interesting. I lived in China for a year. And it's, whenever I tell anyone that, no one has ever said to me, how did you feel about taking someone else's job when you lived and worked there? No one's ever said that to me. Most people are like, wow, that's really interesting. Tell me more. Do you know, no one has ever said to me, oh, how was it being a migrant? No one's ever used that word of my time living in China. They just call me an expat. And it just shows one way of how language is so crucially important in framing how we think about these issues. Like I've said, this is a heart issue. It's ultimately about hospitality versus hostility. If you're a follower of Jesus here today, you are called to be hospitable, not hostile. We are called to love our neighbours, who Jesus basically says is pretty much anyone we encounter by telling the story of the Good Samaritan. He couldn't have got further apart and more offensive in one sense than the people he picked to illustrate the point of who our neighbour is. And he says to love our enemy. Do you know, God fiercely loves every single person on this planet. He fiercely loves them. Every single person on this planet has been made worthy of dignity and respect. Every single person on this planet has been made in the image of God and has in some way some reflection of the creator of the universe, some stamp, some mark of him in them. Every single one is worthy of justice. So whatever we read in our newspapers, whatever we see on our TV screens, whatever we're told by politicians or the media or by the people we follow on Facebook and Twitter, even by people standing up here today, if you're a Christian here today, let the attitude of your heart and your head be shaped first and foremost by what God says, by what the Bible has to say about this issue. We're going to watch a video now, um, which is a dance about refugees, which Joe has choreographed for us. And as we watch it, it's about five minutes long. As you watch it, I just really want you to just reflect on all that you've heard and ask God to just speak into your heart. Please be open to letting him shape what you think as the video rolls.